Welcome to Market Mentors, a podcast for the marketing leaders of today and tomorrow. I'm Fiona Jensen, a director and co-owner of Market Recruitment. For over a decade, I've been helping B2B marketeers find the best jobs with great companies. Together, we'll discover how marketing experts reach the top and learn from their experience. Ask career-related questions you can't get answers to elsewhere. Be tough, be challenged, be mentored. With a product management career spanning the globe from Sydney to San Francisco, Silicon Valley to Sidmouth on the south coast of England, listen to Tor Mitchell's sound advice on product management as a career. Follow his philosophical journey based on empathy, diversity and his experience of bringing product to life, not just on the shelf, but as a valuable function for any business, which then in turn has led him to set up Product Minded, a product leadership coaching business. Welcome to Market Mentors, Tor Mitchell. Thank you ever so much for meeting us in sunny Sydney. Thank you, it's a pleasure. So, um, what I'd like is for you to talk us through your background, experience and uh, the lovely product management world that you're about to take <laughs> us into. Sure. So, um, my kind of journey started while I was at university. Um, I originally studied physics, but I uh, was always dabbling with computers. And uh, I was uh, living, uh, outside of term time, I was living at home in Bournemouth and was looking for a summer job and ended up working for this little internet service provider back in the days when you had like little provincial internet service providers. So it had the inspired name of Bournemouth Internet. Mm -hmm. And they needed uh, someone with some technical skills just to manage their infrastructure. Um, and they had nobody at the time to do that. And so I kind of self-taught myself how to set up Linux servers and, and how to um, run websites and things like that. And this was 1995. So this was before even Windows 95 had launched. Uh, and the sort of early betas of Netscape and things like that. And uh, it became pretty clear uh, quite quickly that this internet thing was probably going to go somewhere. Uh, so when I graduated, I took a job at a much larger internet service provider, and that in turn led me to uh, accepting a role not only six months later with Sun Microsystems, who were hopefully some of you still remember, mm -hmm. but uh, they were a big Unix workstation and network infrastructure provider. Um, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And they were responsible for the Java programming language and a ton of really powerful technology. And I started working for them in the UK, worked for them for a total of eight years. The second half of that was in Silicon Valley at their headquarters. Uh, and then moved back here in 2006 to start working for Google. At that time, I was still in more technical roles, mostly more support focused. So technical, but with a lot of a big people element to them. Um, and it was while I was at Google, a few years later, after I'd moved to Sydney, um, that I discovered product management um, and had some good conversations with people down there who recognized that perhaps that might be a good fit for me. Because although I had technical skills, I was never going to be a Google level software developer. I didn't have the computer science theory background to do that. But I understood the technology and I knew how to work well with people. And so, and I had opinions about how the products could be improved because I'd spent so long on the phone to angry customers. <laughs> um, so I made this transition into product management and started managing a product called the Google Maps API, which 
essentially is a, a set of developer tools for embedding maps in websites and in order to display your own information. So if you've ever seen a Google map on Expedia or Hotels.com or, or kind of a travel site or, or a store finder, kind of looking at that product. And that was my introduction to product management. I worked on that product for about three, three and a half years before moving from Sydney to San Francisco and um, working on broader developer products at Google um, from uh, out of their headquarters in Mountain View. And then came back to the UK in 2015 to join a startup down here in Exeter um, called Crowdview, who do uh, essentially equity crowdfunding. So they help companies raise finance as an alternative to going to a VC or an angel investor by tapping into their existing customer base and partner base. Uh, and it was a, a, a great company, really interesting business, interesting people. And they brought me in to lead the product team uh, and build out the product management as a function within the business. And one of the things that makes them so interesting is they have this great perspective across all the stuff that's happening in the UK kind of technology scene. So it was a really good place to meet people um, and, uh, and sort of understand more about how other businesses were doing product management as well. Very interesting. There we go. So a real international product manager, raft of different levels of experience, and as most product managers, not someone who aspired to be a product manager in the first place. <laughs> no, I mean, I think uh, certainly when I moved into product management, there was a you know, chronic lack of understanding as to the nature of the role or even awareness of its existence. When I moved back to the UK, and started at Crowdcube, one of my first tasks was to build the team. And so I needed to hire some product managers. And to make matters worse, I needed to hire them in Exeter rather than in London. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for an experienced product manager. And I was also open to hiring a graduate, an like entry-level person I could coach into the role. Because they have a, a graduate recruitment program at Google for product managers that's very effective. And so I'd seen how well a graduate could perform in the role if properly um, uh, coached. Um, to my sort of surprise and horror, I discovered that it was easier than I expected to hire an experienced product manager because I knew where to look and the people I was talking to understood the role and what they were applying for. But finding graduates was almost impossible because none of them even knew the role existed. Uh, so even if you put the role in front of them, they wouldn't necessarily recognize it as one that would be a good career path. And you know, often the sort of people I was looking for would just end up going into management consultancy or one of the sort of traditional milk round kind of mm-hmm. uh, routes. I have to say this is getting better. Um, this is improving. Like product management as a function is becoming, the profile is, is in, increasing over time. And so we're starting to see more young people express an interest in, in the path. But for the time being, at least, most people stumble across it at some point and move in um, later in their career. So um, when you were interviewing candidates, what sort of key things were you looking for? Or what sort of questions were you asking? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of key things. Um, I always say when I'm kind of advising people to, to prioritize the things that cannot be taught. Mm. Um, so there are certain behavioral traits that I think the, the strongest product managers consistently exhibit. Um, as a function, empathy is core to the role. It's possibly the most important skill because you need to understand your users, your customers. You need to understand their needs, their pain points, how they'll respond to a particular solution or particular opportunity. But you also need to demonstrate empathy for the people you're working with because you are working with um, engineers, software developers who are um, you know, you're relying on to build these products that you're, um, that you're uh, working together on. But also you're working with all the other functions in the business you know, who have their own set of concerns, their own set of uh, incentives 
and you need to make sure that you can uh, build confidence in them that you're going to deliver a product that will meet those needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I start out looking for kind of the, some of those behavioral factors, um, empathy, also curiosity, a certain degree of humility. I think it's, uh, I don't think arrogance goes well with product management. You need to be able to, uh, to, to listen uh, and understand um, and care about the people that you're working with. And then, you know, I look for diversity in, in all its forms. So you're looking for diversity of uh, not just in the traditional sense of sort of gender and race and so forth, but also kind of age and background and perspectives and interests. Ultimately, you know, in order to exhibit that empathy, you need, it helps to have some personal experience. So the more different perspectives you can have, the better the team will function. But then obviously from a, a pure skills perspective, you need people who have a passion for technology, who genuinely believe, don't necessarily need to be deeply technical, but they need to be interested in technology and, and believe in the power of technology to affect positive change. Um, and they need to have a certain degree of analytical skills because you need to be able to look at the data and understand how your products are performing and you know, be able to do both qualitative and quantitative research. Um, a good eye for what you know what makes a good product and what makes a good design for a product, making things easy to use, making things accessible, and then obviously a certain degree of business acumen. So understand that products need to be sustainable. They have to have a business strategy behind them. Um, they need to not just meet the needs of users, but also uh, the needs of the business as well. Very good. Um, so if we go back to your background, then when you sort of were a product exec um how how do you get from product exec level to product manager or, or what sort of advice would you give to people who want to go on that journey so so in order to move upwards into more of a leadership role yeah well maybe from from a sort of entry level product position mm. to a product manager position maybe there on yeah that journey. um so the, the framework i i use for people who um are in my team or people I'm coaching is that essentially progression as a product manager is a function of the, the degree of complexity that you are comfortable um, dealing with within the, the, the projects you're working on. And complexity as a product manager comes in a variety of forms. It's not just about technical complexity, although that is an aspect of it. It's also about how, um, how many stakeholders do you have? Um, how many partners are you working with? What are the compliance or legal or privacy or security issues that you're dealing with? And um, how large is the team of people who are involved in this project? So there's a lot of different ways in which complexity manifests itself. And in order to um, to be able to demonstrate that you can cope with a certain you know, additional levels of complexity, you need to build confidence within the business that you are capable of handling that. Um, and so... To do that, it essentially comes down to communication and, and over-communication. Um, so you need to be very, very transparent about how you're tackling the challenges that your product is facing at that time, um, what progress is being made, uh, challenges that you're, or roadblocks that you've come up against. Um, and make it sure that everybody involved at all times feels informed and comfortable that things are moving or that if there are problems that they're being tackled. The worst thing you can do as a product manager is leave people wondering what's going on. Mm. Um, that just drains their confidence in you very rapidly. So that's the sort of I, I sort of call it the three C's. So you know you need to have to, to, to in, in order to progress the projects that you deal with need to have more complexity. To do that, you need to build their, the confidence of the people in the business who are deciding who's working on what. And the way you do that is just from from very strong communication. Mm, very good. And what would you say the main challenges are within uh, a career within product management, just from a 
you know, what, what are the toughest things that you sort of come up against on that mission? Um, that's a, an interesting question. So it really depends on the, the business you're in and the culture of that business. In, in some businesses where product managers are a relatively new discipline, part of the challenge is just making people understand what you're there for, mm. to actually kind of recognize value in, in what, you're, what you're bringing uh, to the table. And also at the same time, especially in, in the early stages, uh, product management conceptually always happens in every business. It's just not every business um, actually has a function called product management. And sometimes that, that function is distributed amongst various different people out of necessity. Um, and some of those people may be doing it reluctantly and some of them may be enjoying whatever aspect of the role they're doing. So when you introduce product into a new business, sometimes you have to tease those responsibilities out of the hands of people who um, actually see their, uh, see their role as including that work at, at that time. So there's a certain degree of relationship management um, and that's a sort of a fine line to walk where you demonstrate to them that you, um, you can handle this work more effectively. Um, so getting to a point where people within the business understand the role and you're, you're comfortable that you can, you can do it well is, a, is part of the challenge. Another common thing I see, particularly with younger product managers, is they, they operate under the belief that they carry a huge amount of personal responsibility for the product, that the entire success or failure of the product rests on their shoulders. Uh, and they, uh, they fail to recognize that they're surrounded by a team of people who are there to support them and that who they can share this burden with. You know, you're not expected to come down from the mountain with the perfect product vision that you've formulated in your own mind you know, independently, that it's important to work with other people and, and collaboratively uh, converge on the, the right direction for the product. So um, until you realize that, it can feel quite high pressure and it can feel quite lonely, but it doesn't need to be. And so encouraging people to, um, to, to draw on the resources around them is important. And I also think that because the role is so uh, is relatively young and, and still not that well understood, uh, there's a, a lot of imposter syndrome amongst product managers who are constantly worrying about whether they're doing the job correctly, whether they could be doing it better, how are other people doing it, uh, not helped by, you know, uh, a lot of um, medium articles that written by people that make it sound as if they, they've got it figured out, whereas in reality they certainly haven't. But they're just, uh, you know, writing, um, writing about what they've learned so far, really. Um, so I think you do need to have a certain degree of, of confidence, um, in yourself and your ability to learn. Um, also, one other thing I mentioned is that the funny thing about product management is that almost everybody in a business is an armchair product manager. Everybody has an opinion about the product, where it should go, what it should do. And, and so although, you know, perhaps as a, as a product manager, you wouldn't think to try and tell uh, the, the product council, you know, what position they should take on some legal matter, that doesn't mean the product council won't take every opportunity to tell you what they think you should do about the product. And so is true of everybody else in the business. And that's actually, it can be very frustrating at times because you're just still like everybody is telling you how to do your job. But actually when you recognize that that's just a reflection of the fact that people care about what you're doing. And if you can somehow channel that feedback in a constructive manner, it's quite powerful, but it can be quite unnerving at first. <laughs> mm, yeah, I can well imagine that too. So what advice would you give to your 20 or 30 year old self now? So, um, I would say I've been very fortunate and I, I'm very conscious of this, that 
uh, I've been able to carve out a career path doing something that I find interesting and enjoyable. Um, and I also learned, you know, fairly early on that I perform much better when I'm doing something that I find interesting and enjoyable. Mm. Um, and so uh, my advice would be uh, to, when making decisions about, you know, career-based decisions, is to prioritise that, prioritise it over some of the other things that you might traditionally think to prioritise, like salary mm. or... Um, or title right um so uh it turns out for me at least um that if i focus on doing something that i enjoy and find interesting then success will follow because i'll put more time into it i'll put more energy into it i'll put more passion into it and that hopefully will will translate into positive results um and so there certainly were times when i was younger where i struggled with that where there was a sense of well the sensible thing to do is to take you know this particular opportunity because um, it is a more senior role or it pays better. But actually, um, because it wasn't necessarily the thing that sort of pulled at me from an emotional level, wasn't necessarily the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, what technical skills are needed to jump to a director position? So there's a there's sort of a there has in the past been a bit of a debate within the product management community as to how important. Uh, technical skills are um, this was largely driven by the fact that in the sort of early to mid 2000s when product management was really beginning to establish itself in the US particularly in the larger technology companies like Google and Facebook and so on um, those companies almost exclusively recruited their product managers um, from people with a technical background mm-hmm. so they would hire people who had computer science degrees uh, or who were former software engineers and that was driven largely by a cultural belief within Google at that time that um, that if you were going to have... Well, essentially, uh, the founders of Google were, were, were computer scientists. Mm. And they put computer scientists as the most important role within the business culturally uh, and felt that if you were going to have a group of people come in who were, to some extent let's say heavily heavily influencing the things that those computer scientists would work on, that those people themselves needed to be computer scientists in order to earn the respect of their team. Um, And this uh, was the sort of the conventional wisdom for some time, but it led to a fairly unhealthy dynamic where you had very homogenous teams Mm. where everybody in the team make, you know, basically building the product or working on strategy for the product were, came from very similar backgrounds. And that led to some fairly significant blind spots um, in in their perspectives, which in turn led to some of the kind of, you know, issues around privacy or policy that have caused those companies to trip up in the past. Mm. So I think uh, the good news is that conventional wisdom has moved on now. And there's a recognition, if we go back to when we were talking about hiring, that diversity of, of uh, perspectives and background is actually extremely valuable um, within product management. So uh, when I'm hiring, I, I don't filter that way. Um, I will, you know, I've interviewed people who have English literature backgrounds, who've studied music, who've, um, you know, I've hired people who did, who've um, studied uh, architecture, um, but also obviously STEM disciplines as well. Mm. Um, but what I do look for, as I say, is a is I think it's important that you're um, you have a, you're sufficiently interested in technology that you're willing to learn uh, the 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 fundamentals because a critical part of the role and a critical part of your ability to succeed is that you can maintain 
consistently maintain kind of high bandwidth conversations with engineers. You can talk to them about what they're doing, what's working well, what uh, approaches that you might have been taking are not necessarily going to pan out for some technical reason. And they don't have to spend a lot of their time explaining basic technical con- concepts to you. Mm. That will wear them out quite quickly. Mm. Um, so I think that you know you can come into the discipline from any direction, but once you're in it, you need to sort of uh, develop an understanding of the principles. Gotcha. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, and then, so from the technical skills question, how do you get involved in the board's strategic decisions from a product management perspective or angle? Yeah, this is a, this I think depends quite heavily on the culture of the business. Mm. And that, that's sort of what I've seen. You know, if you have a business that's quite traditional and quite hierarchical, then the senior leadership will hold the board relationship quite close to their chest. And it can be quite hard as someone who's more junior to get any visibility with the board or any um, or spend any time with them. However, uh, younger companies or companies that are perhaps a bit more open-minded will actually um, recognise value in bringing kind of domain expertise into the right conversations. So the reality is that um, another kind of common mistake I see younger product managers make is that when they go into a meeting with more senior leaders they can be executives within the business or potentially even the board is they might go in there expecting those people to have perfect judgment they essentially go in expecting to get clear direction from them as to what they should do but the reality is that senior leadership in any organization um, it can only speak from their own experience and as the product manager the particular space the problem space you're working with because you're focused on that full-time all of the time you almost certainly understand that space better than they do. Um, and so they are looking to you as the product manager for guidance and recommendations. And so if you end up in a situation where you've got a junior product manager who comes in looking for guidance and the leadership team are looking for guidance and you're, there's no content mm. within the conversation and that will go, that meeting will go badly. Um, <laughs> so, um, so something, you know, I, I always it, it sort of reinforce to people on my team is that you're the expert and, and you know, don't, if you get the opportunity to spend time with more senior people, don't be afraid to assert your opinions because mm. they are, um, you're better qualified to have them. Um, so, however, you know, um, depending, it also depends on what relationship the business has with the board. Is it a very collaborative one or is it quite a confrontational one? Is the business going well or is it a time of crisis? Uh, you know, are they closing ranks or are they quite open-minded? But if they are open um, and things are going well, then simply demonstrating that uh, you have a lot to offer means that you know it, you should be invited into the conversations that apply to you. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you're actually a head of product or chief product officer, kind of at that level, you shouldn't necessarily expect to be in every board meeting. But um, it's it's reasonable to ask to be included in those that are specifically focused on your product. Mm. And it's good good experience, good exposure. And maybe a way of gaining some insight or experience to help you get to more of a head of product or senior position within product, if that's where where you want to go. Absolutely. I, I think that's very true. I also think that it's quite eye-opening for younger people to understand how, how businesses really operate at the most senior levels. Um, because I think that it's easy when you're younger to have a uh, an impression that there's some... Um, uh, sort of, I don't know, hive mind operating at the top of the business that's that's directing it. But actually, you know, 
board meetings are messy, are messy things, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of different opinions, a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different conversations that go on and people have their own um, agendas and their own perspectives. And so understanding that actually these things are a collaborative, but also, uh, you know, they can be quite lively. <laughs> um, it, it, I think, sheds some light on the way the business works, but also helps people empathize better with the leadership of the business, which then in turn allows them to better anticipate the way that they might respond or behave under different circumstances. Mm, Very good. What's the best career advice you've ever been given or found for yourself? Um, Well, I mean, we touched earlier on kind of focus on the things that you care, that you, you find enjoyable and interesting. And, And I think that was the, that's the thing that perhaps sticks out for me as, um, as a message I would, I would pass on. Again, I realise I'm fortunate to be able to do that. That's not always as simple as it sounds, depending on your personal circumstances. But, uh, yeah, that's, I think I'd probably focus on that. <laughs> so try and find something that, that you enjoy or that you can... Well, in particular, make... When you're faced with a career decision, mm. ask yourself which of those opportunities is the one that makes you feel most uh, excited to get started. Mm. One decision I made when I was uh, in my late 20s was I realised that I'd never lived abroad, Mm. never travelled. And I didn't take a year out or anything like that. Um, And my family, we would would take holidays abroad when I was younger, and my mother's Norwegian, so we would travel to Norway quite often. And my, both my brother and sister lived abroad. So there was sort of a bit of a precedent within the family for, for, living, for, for living abroad. Um, but it's not something I'd ever done. And after a particular trip overseas, I realised, actually, this might be an interesting and worthwhile thing to do. And for, from that point onwards, for probably a period of about 10 years, I made a set of career decisions which allowed me to, to travel and to live in different interesting places but at a cost, right? Uh, there's no doubt that from a pure conventional career progression perspective, career ladders, salaries, titles, I would probably have been better served by not moving about as much. But I decided that that was something that was more interesting and valuable to me. And looking back on it, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that I did that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there are concrete points in time where I was faced with that decision. And consistently when I have prioritised uh, my own kind of sense of personal fulfilment, uh, that's worked out better. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I can well imagine. And just out of interest, is there anything that you sort of miss from your years in Australia and San Fran? And, or where, where did you sort of enjoy living the most? Um, so the quality of life in Australia is extraordinarily good. Or at least, mm. you know, we certainly had a really positive experience there. Culturally, they have a really strong work-life balance. It's a very friendly society and it's a beautiful place, right? Mm. It's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, just a lovely place to be. The weather's great. There's so much to do. And there's a strong expat community. So plenty of people and, uh, you know, friends to meet and that sort of thing. So in terms of just looking back on, you know, when do we have the most enjoyable time? Then, you know, I, there's, there's so many good things about living in Australia that, mm. that I look back on fondly. Um, whereas, uh, living in San Francisco was a very, very different experience, not a negative way, but just uh, far more sort of work-centric 
um, far more intense in a sense. The, you know, I was living in San Francisco. Google's headquarters are about 30 miles south of San Francisco in Silicon Valley. So many people choose who work at Google choose to live in San Francisco that Google now run a network of commuter shuttle buses from the city down to the office and back every day. And this is a huge network. I mean, just there are about seven to ten routes that run through the city every half an hour in the morning and every hour in the evening. But the traffic is so bad that it takes about an hour and a half each way every day. So, and these buses are set up to help you um, get stuff done while you're on them. They've got tables and power and Wi-Fi and seats that slide out into the aisle so you've got enough elbow room to type, things like that. They've been very carefully thought out. But the net effect of that is that you get on the bus at 8 o'clock in the morning uh, and then um, you know you don't get necessarily home until 7 o'clock at night and you, you've just done an 11-hour day every day. Mm. Um, so you know you get to the weekend and you're exhausted. So, um, But on the other hand... You know, Silic, Silic, because so much of what happens in the technology industry sort of grows out of that part of the world, you genuinely feel like you're living in the future. I mean, you're just you've got a, a, a six to twelve month advantage in terms of what you can see coming just by being in that place where all these interesting companies are trying all these interesting things all the time. And so, I certainly miss that sense of having this amazing perspective on on the direction of the industry. And, you know, don't get me wrong, San Francisco is also a great city, a really interesting, lively, hugely culturally diverse, real character, particularly for an American city. That's perhaps a little bit unusual and, and, you know, and a fascinating place to be. Mm. Well, I can well imagine. (laughs) I could have you talk another hour about San Francisco. What advice have you received from your mentor that made the most impact? Um, so one thing really stands out to me, and I mentioned earlier that uh, I made the move into product management while I was at Google in Sydney, and that did not happen overnight. Um, what actually happened was uh, I was at a point where I'd been in the, the role, my current role there for, for a number of years, and I was trying to decide what to do next. And I had an offer on the table to move to San Francisco at that time to manage an engineering team. Uh, I also had another opportunity to stay in Sydney but move into software engineering. But as I said, I was always conscious that I would probably be a competent engineer, but I would never be a stellar one by Google standards. And my manager, who was also a very good friend, approached me when he heard I was struggling with this decision and said, before you make that decision, uh, I know in the past you've expressed an interest in product management. So you should be aware that I am considering doing a rotation into engineering. So Google offer a program where product managers can spend six months doing software engineering and vice versa. Mm. He said, so I will need someone to cover for me. And I think you would be uh, well suited to do that. He said, I can't guarantee that that would turn into a full-time role at the end. But, um, you know, I can offer you six months on the team as their product manager. And you can use that opportunity to build relationships and get some experience and hopefully make it easier to, to convert. And conversion was known to be quite tough. Product management is quite... Um, it, it's a role that uh, there's a lot of a lot of um, applicants. So they even for internal transfers, they put you through the full interview process. Mm-hmm. And so he was, you know, went to great lengths to to stress that this was not guaranteed. But just harking back to what I was saying about focus on the things that you're most interested in, I took the decision to take that rotation, even though I had solid offers on the table for other things that were also uh, interesting, but just didn't grab me as much. So I had six months in which to make to prove myself as a product manager at Google. And I went for lunch with another senior, like a very senior product manager in the Sydney office at that time. And this is a fascinating woman. 
um, called Stephanie Hannon. And Stephanie has had a most extraordinary career. She was one of the early product managers on Gmail. She was one of the people involved in launching Google Maps in Europe. Um, she was in Australia because she worked on Google Wave for a number of years, um, which was an interesting project, which unfortunately didn't, didn't survive. But after Google Wave, she went on to work at Facebook for a while, then came back to Google, did public policy, and then went on to become chief technology officer of Hillary Clinton's election campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, these days is the chief product officer at Strava. Mm. Amazing woman. Um, just a force of nature. And so I went for lunch and um, I said, okay, I explained that I was going to do this rotation and asked her, you know, what, uh, whether she had any advice. And she said, well, the most important thing is that you ship something. I said, she said, it sounds simple, but it's the day to day is so hectic and busy and you can lose sight of the fundamental goal. She said, this business, Google in particular, and I think this is true of many product businesses, it doesn't matter how hard you, as a product manager, it doesn't matter how hard you're working if you don't actually deliver products. So, so you've only got six months. That's not very long, you know, by Google standards, but you, you have to be able to point to some, to having delivered something concrete. So I took that to heart and actually uh, went back to the team. I told them this, I said, look, um, I, I want to do well here. And that's going to, a big factor of that is, is whether we are able to, to, to deliver some real value while I'm, I'm in this role. And they were super supportive because it was just a great bunch of people we had a big event coming up about four months later, which is Google's big developer conference called Google I.O., which was kind of one of our main thing targets for the year. And so we basically set out this really aggressive program of delivering some really compelling new features for Google I.O. And, um, and it was just, you know, it was like one of my favorite times there because I didn't know how it was going to work out. It was only a few months before actually i had like i was planning my wedding at the same time um um, and i had this like intense period of time to prove that i could do this job and i think we ended up launching like six or seven things it was it was amazing uh and you know i wouldn't have gone into it with that level of of focus if Mm. i hadn't have had that advice Oh, very good. That sounds amazing. Um, what's the most valuable lesson you've learned in marketing or business or product management and how did it come about so it's an interesting question. I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to cheat and give you two. <laughs> um, so one of the most challenging formative projects I've ever worked on, I mentioned that my time in Google was spent working on the Google Maps API, and that was the product I was rotated into. And by good fortune, my, my manager and, and friend um, was promoted uh, while I was on rotation because his manager left Google. So that left his role open for me. And when I did successfully convert, I was able to stay in that same team and continue to manage that product, which I loved. I absolutely loved. You'll see around you, uh, there's maps everywhere because I just found mm-hmm. maps fascinating. Um, but the challenge was that this was a product that had been launched in 2005 in response to developers creatively figuring out how to do it in an unofficial capacity an unsupported way by hacking uh, away at Google Maps itself. And it had been launched because it seemed like an interesting opportunity and it spoke very much to Google's mission, which is organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. But it didn't really have a business strategy behind it at all. And that's fine at first when it's just kind of this interesting sideline, but it had grown and grown and it continued to grow. And over the time that I was working on it, it went from 300,000 developers to over a million. Uh, And... Um, at, there came a point at which the Maps API was d- generating and delivering more maps to people than Google Maps. Um, and at that point, the business started paying attention and saying, well, why are we doing this? 
what is the value proposition of this product? Uh, how is it delivering value back to Google? Um, and we had to go through a very, very painful process of retrofitting a strategy to this thing, which essentially bore down to setting reasonable limits on how much it could be used and then putting a pricing model in place on top of that, which, as you can imagine, went down like a lead balloon mm. with all the developers who'd be using it for free and in unlimited quantities up to that point. And there was a lot of negative press and we had to do a lot of kind of, uh, you know, we didn't get the pricing right the first time because we had no framework in which to price it because we'd set the market price at zero for so many years. And it was, a, a, you know, you can argue that it played a significant part in um, the diversification of that of that space, like OpenStreetMaps um, got a lot of uh, additional attention as an alternative because of this pricing and so on. And so it was a real formative experience for me to say, make sure you've got a but you make sure you've got a strategy. Make sure mm. you've got um, a, uh, you know, that your product not just meets a user need, but also is sustainable. And you hear product people often talk about how you need to put the user first. You need to focus on the, the customer needs and everything else will follow. And I think that's good advice, but it cannot be in isolation. You have to understand why you're doing this. And you have to understand you've got a balanced value proposition on both sides. So that was kind of one formative experience. The second thing I would say just briefly is when I think of this in terms of what advice I give people who are starting out on this journey, I can't pinpoint a particular instance where I learned this, but I've seen this mistake made so many times that I always feel the need to stress it, which is that one of the most common mistakes I see product teams make is assuming that potential users or customers will behave the way that that team needs them to behave in order for their product to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and users aren't like that. <laughs> They're just messy, unpredictable things. And um, uh, often I'll see people come and they'll, they'll pitch ideas or they'll, they'll um, talk about their product strategy. And it's so dependent on users behaving or responding to the product in a particular way. Um, and the answer is often, have you validated that they will do that? Mm. Because nine times out of ten they won't. <laughs> and how, how would they validate that the users would do that? What's, the, what's that? Well, let me give you a concrete example. Um, I was doing uh, what they call um, team, I think it was just called a a team coach for a a Google, uh, for a startup weekend. So startup weekends are an event. I think Google somehow started or sponsored them, but they have one all over the world now and they were doing one in Exeter. Uh, Essentially, you can come along on the Friday evening and you, anybody can come along. They form some teams around some ideas and then they try and deliver a a prototype of a product in the weekend. Mm. Um, It's a, it's a really fun exercise. Um, And they asked me to come along and just kind of drift amongst the teams and give them some advice and keep them on track. And there was one team that was trying to help. I think they were trying to help people um, save money at the supermarket. And the idea was that you would scan the products that you were buying with your phone and the product would tell you essentially whether they were available for cheaper elsewhere um, and I think it could do some other things. It might have, that they might have been sort of telling you how much your gross to have in it, things like that. Mm. And it sounded compelling, but I said to them, your, your whole proposition relies on people doing this. Now you need, now let's empathize with the people who are actually doing the shopping. You're a mother of, of two. You've got your kids in tow. You're juggling a, a shopping trolley and, you know, and potentially some bags and you expect them to get their phone out and scan every product they're buying and their sort of face just dropped. Like, mm. this is never going to happen. Mm. It doesn't matter how compelling, uh, you know, the data that you're providing once they do that is. 
you're just not going to get them into the habit of doing it. It's just not practical in the real world. And they've not gone out to a supermarket and just looked at the way people shop, mm. right? The, the simplest of things, just they always tell you, get out of the room, right? Mm. Get out there and, and just observe, talk to people, understand them. Um, just the smallest bit of research would have demonstrated that um, what they were asking people to do wasn't practical, you know, at scale. Mm. Perfect. Really good example. Thank <laughs> uh, what's the worst experience you've had working for someone? Um, well, I think... Uh, I always say that uh, I would hope that I'm a better manager for, for having worked for some bad managers. Um, I'm not going to name names, but, uh, <laughs> but there's no doubt that I've had some managers who I felt were really invested in me as a person and cared about my personal progression um, and others who saw their people management responsibilities as a necessary evil um, and essentially just tried to minimise their own workload. Mm. Um, and, you know, one of the kind of the... the 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 things I say to people who are moving into people management for the first time is it's important to understand your place in this relationship. Like you as the, the manager work for the people who work, who are on your team. It's not the other way around. Mm. Um, your job as a manager is to, is to make them is to facilitate their success. And consequently, you know, if you go into a one-on-one with them, for example, what you, you need to give them the, the space and the sort of the, what we call the psychological safety to, to open up about the challenges they've got and the things that are worrying them and, and what they are looking to do in the long-term career-wise and actually be able to have constructive conversations with them. Um, if I compare that to some of the managers I've had who have not been great, you'd go into a meeting like that and they would just want a status update and they'd want to be out of the room as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, you know, Essentially, they were just looking and they were only really doing it because they knew they were meant to. And so unsurprisingly, with, with people like that, you get to the end of the year and you haven't had a single good conversation about your performance or how or what you need to do or where to, to improve and then your performance review comes along and it comes as a complete surprise to you mm. and as far as i'm concerned if if a performance review comes as a surprise to someone then their manager has failed them because those should be conversations that are happening all the time yeah and so i do look back on certain specific people and think what would that person have done in this situation because i'm not going to do that mm. yeah <laughs> right? that's what not to do <laughs> that's a good way to use it actually isn't it so even even bad experience can lead to a much better style of work absolutely what's the worst advice you've heard and why um so unlike the example i had earlier with the with the mentor um, i can't think of a specific case where someone said something to me which in retrospect was clearly bad advice what i would say is that there are some common ways in which product management is described that are not necessarily that healthy or useful. And the most uh, common one of those is you'll sometimes hear uh, product managers described as the CEO of their product. And the, this, I think, maybe came about, I might be wrong here, but I think it came about from a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, mm. um, which was written by um, Ben Horowitz, uh, who's one of the co-founders of Anderson Horowitz, the VC firm in, in the States. And it was written quite a long time ago, back in the days when product management was just beginning to emerge. And what he was trying to say was that product management managers have to think of the totality of all the issues that surround their product. You don't necessarily have to be a, a, a top-class engineer, but you need to understand the engineering challenges. You don't need to be a marketer, but you need to understand the marketing strategy. You don't need to be a lawyer, but you need to understand the compliance issues, and so on and so on. So there is this sense that it's this fully rounded 300-degree role. Um, and that's what he was trying to get across, is that it, you you do a little bit of everything. 
But the reason it's potentially an unhealthy analogy is because it implies a level of authority that doesn't exist. Product management is very much uh, a role of influence um, uh, and not of authority. You have to build relationships and you have to persuade people and you have to build their trust that your vision for the way the product should go is the right one because you don't manage the engineers that work on, on the product. Um, you know, the only people that product managers manage is potentially other product managers when they get into more senior roles, but they don't manage any of these other functions that they engage with. So they can decide not to, they can decide to ignore you. They can decide not to work with you or to go in a different direction if they disagree. So the suggestion that somehow you're an authoritative figure, uh, you know, product managers, sometimes you see people who have worked closely or tangentially with product managers and feel like product managers are the people who decide what gets done. And they come into the role thinking they can tell people what to do. Mm. And uh, it doesn't it doesn't work out well for them. <laughs> Compute, no, yeah. absolutely. Um, with pressures of general life, how do you manage the work-life balance and how important is that in today's society? So... It's a it's an ongoing challenge, mm. um, and the funny thing is that it's a what I found is that uh, going back to what I was saying earlier about how products that I find interesting and enjoy working on I tend to work harder on, um, and therefore I tend to it tends to go better for me. Well, unsurprisingly, it's those same products that I find it harder to disengage from, mm. but and and so I'll be thinking about them at home or I'll be continuing to work on stuff at home and yet at the same time those are the things that i enjoy and find interesting so that doesn't bother me greatly whereas there have been situations where i've perhaps been unhappy or disillusioned with a product where i find it easier to leave it at the door because i'm just like i'm done with this i'm going home <laughs> Do you know what <laughs> I mean? um so i've yeah. actually i've actually had more problems with work-life balance when with the, the products i've really loved mm. um but at the same time it hasn't been um too problematic because it hasn't felt like work because I've been enjoying it so much. Mm. So I, I'm, I've been lucky in that sense. However, it is quite easy to burn, to get burnt out and mm. not realise it's happening. Mm. Um, I think burnout is a, is something that you hear people talk about, but until you've actually experienced it in some sense, you don't really recognise it um, because it kind of creeps up on you. Uh, and, and so um, there have been times when I have suddenly realized that it's happening and I've had to take a step back and try and wind down. There have also been times when, you know, I talked about Google I.O. earlier. There was always a crunch in the run-up to that. There was always a high-stress, intensive period. But you knew it would be over. Mm. You knew there was a day would come when it would stop. Uh, and that was somehow okay. Mm. That was better. It's when it, there doesn't seem to be an end in sight that it, I think it really gets to you. So I think one of the things that you, you do learn as you... Um, as you develop, it's just a sense, a better sense of of introspection, ability to introspect and understand your own emotional and you know, mental state. And I think people talk a lot more about mental health now, which is obviously a very good thing. Uh, and people and companies increasingly recognise it as an important facet of people's performance and people's well being. Um, and so I think it's not, in a sense, it's not just about the so called work life balance. There's a, it's that's part of this bigger question of how do you ensure that you're you're, you're in a good place um, and that you're, uh, you're drawing energy from your work rather than it draining you. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's hugely important, but it's, it's a tough one, particularly when you're just starting out, to, to really get your head around. 
Mm. And I can imagine, you know, the the sort of opportunity you talked about with Crowdcube, where you're coming in and sort of setting up product management. You know, there's maybe not just the product management job itself, but the scoping out of the role and building something from scratch. I think you do give a bigger part of yourself to situations and, and times like that. Yeah, I, I think we all have a sense of the kind of, the, oh, for want of a better word, the gravitas of the work that we're doing at any given moment in time. And there are certain projects which feel more important uh, or certain challenges that feel more um, kind of existential. So um, certainly there were times at Crowdcube where I was very conscious that, that we were working on things that were really make or break for the business. Um, one of the kind of the luxuries of working at Google is that... Um, for the for the majority of people on the are working on the technology products is that Google essentially is this massive money making machine that's primarily driven by the ads business and so you can afford to make mistakes because the impact you have on the overall success of the business is marginal whereas in a startup totally different environment you know you can make decisions that will dramatically impact the the long term success or failure of the business so um you have to learn to be able to compartmentalize to some extent. And that, again, it comes down to managing your imposter syndrome and having confidence that you're doing as good a job as you can could, could hope to do. Um, but that it's okay if you, if you try your hardest and you, um, you know, and, and you approach the role responsibly, if things don't work out, not to beat yourself up about it. Um, because uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes things won't work out. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, that's in every walk of life, isn't it? Every mm. career. What do you listen to when you need to focus? There's kind of two different two different mindsets I have for that. Sometimes I just need silence. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I just want complete peace, and so I might work from home or something like that. Um, if I'm in the office and you know I, I, I'm surrounded by distractions, uh, then I might tuck myself away somewhere where people won't necessarily expect to find me mm-hmm. um and if i do want to listen to some music i tend to find that if i'm working on something that requires real focus like intense focus i can't listen to anything with lyrics mm. um so i'll put on something that's more instrumental and it, and it could be anything from you know classical through to daft punk right mm-hmm. it, it just depends on the mood i'm in um but uh and the zone you need to be in I suppose. exactly yeah exactly <laughs> Very good. And what is the book you recommend the most for marketers or product managers or anybody really today? One thing that I, one book I, I rate quite highly is a book called Creativity Inc., mm. which was written by Ed Catmull, who was one of the co-founders of Pixar. And the book is, is uh, at, at its heart, it's a book about how to successfully manage creative people. Um, but it's also mixed in with a good amount of history and real-world examples from Pixar, which I just find, think is an interesting and fascinating business anyway. It's fantastic. Um, so, you know, uh, it, it, the book is, is quite easy to read because of that, because it's, it's broken up with these nice anecdotes and stories. Um, but it's also a pretty remarkable story in itself, that business. Um, but as I say, the, the, the interesting thing about that, that book is that it's not just a biography. It talks about what they learned about how to get the best out of people. Um, and there are a lot of obviously books on managing people and being a manager, but this one, um, I feel takes quite a healthy approach. What parting words of wisdom or advice would you share with our audience? Well, I suppose, um, 
it depends on what their it depends on their personal um, motivations and and what role they're in. I think if you are someone who is interested in moving into product management, then um, my advice would be to spend time with or get to know the product managers in your existing business. Um, maybe look to attend some meetups. There's a, a network of meetups around the world called Product Tank. Um, and there are some other smaller local events as well. But Product Tank is now in about 160 cities worldwide, including London, Birmingham, Oxford, Cardiff, Brighton, Exeter, um, and, and, and elsewhere. So um, try and find a meetup near you, spend some time with people, and then um, offer your services to the product teams that you're working with just to get a bit more exposure to them and and just be honest and say this is something that I'm interested in and I'd like to learn more about because actually there's a huge demand for product managers and it's much much easier to recruit internally than to hire externally so if you make someone aware this is something you're interested in the long term they will they're quite likely to be keen to coach you if you're someone who perhaps is in a, a, an adjacent role that works closely with product management such as marketing um, I think my advice there would be obviously it's it's helpful to understand you know what product managers are, are, are trying to do um or what what their what their role is in the business but i think also uh it, product managers in general are juggling relationships with so many different functions and people that often they won't necessarily understand um your role beyond a, a fairly superficial level like there's always a risk that you can oversimplify marketing, you can oversimplify sales and so on and so forth. So spend time with them and, and explain to them what actually um, you're focused on, what your your performance is measured on, what kind of pressures you're under from your manager. Help them empathize with you and understand kind of the incentives you're operating under. Um, and I think what you'll discover fairly rapidly, especially on the marketing side actually, is that you're all trying to solve the same problem. Um, if you look at the history of product management, it grew out of, of more of a marketing function. When I was at Sun, there were people called product managers, but they were marketers, mm. pure marketers. Um, and, you know, businesses often increasingly now have these growth marketing teams are essentially a hybrid of product and marketing. So there is a, a, a healthy amount of overlap and a real opportunity to build a strong relationship there. But I've sadly seen too many cases where that's a, a, um, a competitive relationship rather than a constructive one and i don't think it needs to be i think actually they you know you can each be each other's strongest advocates lovely what a good note to leave <laughs> thank you ever so much for your time no today. problem my pleasure thanks for having me so there you have it some great insights into the role of product management how to work with product managers and how to pursue a career in product management from a leader in the field if you're enjoying this podcast, then please leave us a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback.